Welcome back to the Bioactive Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Twinkle Paryani, who is a research and development scientist at Abstracts Tech. Today's episode is going to be a focus on the smelly molecules in cannabis and some new research in this realm. Recently, the Abstracts team published a paper about some of the molecules responsible for the unique smells of cannabis beyond the terpene profile. So this is greatly expanding our knowledge on what's responsible for these cool smells. Previously, the same group published a paper on the sulfur-containing compounds found in cannabis that give certain skunky varieties that signature smell. Now they're diving into the savory and sweet exotic varieties of cannabis and figuring out exactly what molecules are responsible for that aroma. A quick introduction to a tool that we're going to be talking about in this episode that's called GC or gas chromatography. We don't need to get into the real details here, but GC is a method for separating and analyzing the volatile molecules, so the very easily evaporated molecules in cannabis. Here, Abstracts is using a method called two-dimensional GC to actually map out these smelly molecules so they can figure out what might be interesting or new. So before we get started, I'm going to just include some components of Twinkle and I's early conversation and give you a little sneak peek on a really cool project we've got going on. While you're listening to this episode, if you could just go to your phone and drop this podcast a five-star review, that would mean the world to me. And also, thank you to all the Patreons who are asking amazing questions, who are getting sneak peeks on upcoming episodes, and who are requesting future guests. Thank you so much. You make this podcast possible, as well as making the new project that I'm announcing this week possible. Thank you so much. Do I have okay. a lot of dog hair on my dog fur <laughs> on me right now? So I was trying to check. Story of my life. I, I actually had this idea a long time ago to make leggings and outfits that were animal hair print. So then you could just like hug your cat <laughs> or your dog and then it just incorporated into your outfit already. I saw something just now that was like workout leggings that are pet hair repellent. And I was wow. like, how okay. has it well, taken us this long? That's solving problems. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Dude, I love your dog, Max. I'm obsessed. Thank like, you. He's so cute. Right now. I, so can cute. you believe that I've had him for maybe like 11 or 12 years? And he's like 14 that, years old. That dog looks maybe two or three years old. Like, it's so cute. He looks like my dog just shrunken down. Is he like 10, 15 pounds? Like, he's very small. Yeah, he's like 12 pounds. Yeah, so I have like a larger version of him that's like 40 pounds. <laughs> oh my god, you have a big Max. Yeah, exactly. I, I love the pictures on your Instagram. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I also love your name, Twinkle. That's a sick name. Thank you. This is really awesome for me because I've followed you and Miyabi since before I started working in the cannabis industry. So like... This is super cool for me. Whoa, that's so cool. I saw you guys and I was like, wow, this is the first time I've seen like any women PhDs working in the cannabis industry. Like, this is so cool. And it was like, wow, it's not your traditional um, bro company. Yeah, there was, um, you know, we worked with a lot of bro companies and we were kind of, we kind of just made our own space in this industry because we were like, you know, I don't know if we really fit into any sort of mold and I'm super thankful for Miyabi for like, you know, working with me and just like creating that space together. It's been super awesome and we're actually starting a nonprofit together um, for cannabis research and education. So that's our big next step that we're probably going to so release awesome. yeah, in the next like week or so. But we're going to try to start with like 
the largest cannabis survey ever so we can try to gauge like consumer interest consumer use patterns and i mean we're users we're very open users of cannabis so we're hoping we've cultivated these communities where people can be honest about their cannabis use and they'll answer honestly because you know when people like go to a doctor and they talk about their alcohol or cannabis use everyone lies everyone does so it's like that's not really helping us at all in any industry so we're kind of Gonna gate. We're asking tough questions about mental health, about cannabis and pregnancy, about cannabis and driving, and then this is our baseline survey. And then later, we hope to probe those same people and say, "Hey, would you know you answered this in our survey? Would you mind doing a follow up survey for a very specific thing?" And then we're gonna do, um, you know, in silico and in vitro, and hopefully in vivo data eventually too. That's so cool. Oh, I'm glad you guys are still working together. That makes me really happy too. Like that's Oh awesome. yeah. But thank you for being on. I'm really yeah. excited to talk to you. And honestly, part of the reason I wanted you on specifically from your team is like because you are a woman and like we need to boost each other's voices as much as possible. And I hope to talk to like Ian and the rest. I mean, I've talked to them through like weed maps, but I hope to have him on in the future and he can talk about the research too. Um, but I really wanted to start with you from the, from the abstracts team. Thank you. Absolutely. So yeah, I think we can just get started. I might take a little bit of what we just said and kind of just incorporate it because it's just fun conversational stuff. But um, thank you for being on my podcast, Bioactive. And we're back talking about some really, really, really cool new research that just came out from Abstracts Tech. And today we have Twinkle. You are one of the lead researchers at Abstracts and doing some amazing groundbreaking work. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just doing a little introduction of yourself and how you got into cannabis, why you love weed. If you're a weed consumer, if you're willing to talk about that, you know, feel free to put that out there now. For sure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I love cannabis. I am a user. Um, I got into cannabis pretty young, pretty early into my life. Um, and I think that it's been a really essential tool for me and my success, honestly. And I feel like I owe so much to cannabis. Um, I think it has like great medicinal properties. That's why I like using it. I also love using it recreationally. So my use started very young. I'm a pretty frequent user of like all different kinds of products um, just to whatever I think can help me. And I really love the powers that it has um, to be able to work with or replace um, traditional pharmaceutical medicine. So uh, I don't know. I just fell in love with cannabis immediately when I felt like anxiety relief I was like oh wow I can be myself and not have to worry about a thousand other things at once and I think oh, that instant feeling of just like the world being lifted off your shoulders it's it's so powerful I know and I have like controversial opinions about it too like I feel like I used it to help me study and it helped so much because I wasn't so worried about learning the material that I could actually just be present and learn the material so I used it during college and I feel like it was really instrumental in my success. So getting to come and work in cannabis was really a dream too. And yeah, get to combine my two passions, which is science and cannabis. I'm sure you feel the same way. Oh my God. I'm, I'm glad you brought up like studying and helping your brain in that way, because I don't think a lot of people talk about that. I think a lot of people use it as like a reward after studying, but I say it all the time. Like I had a kind of hard time understanding science until I started using cannabis and then studying and learning in that way. Because as you're saying, it's like you're not focused on like the tiny little details and like memorizing everything you possibly can. Instead, you're kind of like looking at the big picture of like, why does this matter? What does this mean? Like what? And I it's hard to describe, but even writing too, like allowing your flow and your creativity to come through. It's it's really beautiful. Like I I'm not a good writer when I don't use cannabis and then I use cannabis and I'm like vibing, listen to music. I got, you know, my mood lighting going. It's just a completely different experience. I feel that. And I think like as someone who is like, I'm neurodivergent, I think we have a different relationship with cannabis and obviously it's not going to be the same for anyone no matter what. But I think that's part of the reasons why when I talk to my peers about their usage and how they experience it, we have such different opinions. And I'm like, well, you're valid and my experience is valid too. So it's just totally different. And I think like 
you know, that's where the interesting neuroscience aspects can come in too that I'm not super familiar with, but I'm sure you guys have lots yeah, of experience but with I, this. You know, th that's part of why I, I always refer to cannabis as personalized medicine because it, it really is. It's like you can change your consumption method to be more in line for whatever you need to feel like, which is also why I hate when people online are like, you shouldn't smoke. Nobody should vape edibles only it's like okay that's your experience that's fine it's valuable it's important but that's for you like you should not be getting on the internet and just telling people what to do with their lives because then they're just not going to trust you they're not going to want to communicate with you and you're just making enemies at that point like I agree. It's like if, if you respond really well to smoking, you should smoke and we're all different and we should take that. Some people need to use cannabis all day long from the second they wake up to when they go to bed. Some people are good just once a day. Some people are good once a week. Some people will never use it. It completely depends. But thanks for telling yeah. me a little bit about yourself. I mean, I, I love what you guys are doing over at Abstracts. How did you get that job? Like, so you said... You know, the content Miyabi and I have made and, you know, following us has kind of helped with that. But did you want to work in a lab? Um, what was the process like? Because it seems like kind of a dream job, I think, working at Abstracts. That team seems unbelievably cool. Yeah, the team is super cool. Um, it is definitely like a dream job situation, which is really crazy to think about. Um, I have a background in public health. And so I worked in a lab before. I worked in two different labs before I came to Abstracts. So originally I started out working in like tobacco public health actually. Um, oh, cool. So I kind of was like trying to see where the government was standing on it and what kind of resources they had and I got that experience and then I worked in a cannabis testing lab which was a totally different experience. The lab I started out in was pretty much a research lab. The lab I was working in at the next point was like a production lab. Um, or like a manufa manufacturing, like high throughput testing lab. Um, and then I knew that I wanted to get back into research after that. And so I was kind of looking for something like that. But actually when I found Abstracts, I wasn't even applying for a research position. I was applying for a managerial position in the, within their lab. And um, their CSO was like, actually, I think you would be much better suited for this R&D job with your experience, because I had experience with mass spec. I had a lot of different cool. instrumentation experience. Um, and then I interviewed for that team. And it was something that I never had really, like, you know, you think about research as a very abstract concept, but being in a research lab and doing research every day is a very different concept. It can be it can be a lot more tedious and meticulous than you anticipate because you're looking at the 100%. big picture when you go in. Yeah, um, everyone thinks it's like every day you're doing something different and new and you can like just pick up a project that you want. But research is so much fun. I mean, it, it really is so much fun. But it, it really isn't what a lot of people think it is because you might have one specific question, one specific project, and it might take you two years to like make any progress in figuring that out. It's not always as like instantaneous as people think it is. Yeah, and it takes like, <clears throat> I don't really think it takes anything special except for stick to itiveness. Like if you can just stick with it, you will get something out of it, um, which is really can be very challenging. But so I came into the team at Abstracts. They had a um, they had a team already who was working on GC cross GC or two dimensional gas chromatography. So I got to come in at a point where they were already making cool discoveries. Um, they had already discovered the other can of sulfur compounds that are responsible for the garlic and skunky smells. This was all news to me when I was interviewing with them. I was like, oh, this is so cool. You're um, like, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea. I know. I was like, and honestly, I didn't when I first, when one of my um, old coworkers actually brought the job to my attention, we were like, oh, it's a terpene company. So we didn't even know they were doing cannabis at all. We thought they were only doing um botanically derived terpenes, which they, we, they do much more than that. We do much more than that. Um, 
You guys so, seem to be involved in like a lot of things. Um, you know, we are. <laughs> so I, I was talking to people at a uh, cannabis event in Providence, Rhode Island, and someone brought you guys up. And I, I mentioned that I was working with Weed Maps and you guys to try to get this information out. And they were in like this completely different sector. And I'm like, you guys are working with abstracts. <laughs> like they, they're working with a lot of different people. Like I, I think you're about to do some of like the coolest research or have already done some of the coolest research in the industry. Yeah, it is really cool. And that's one of the other great things that I love about abstracts is they're super willing to collaborate with people. So like we get to work with different people across different industries who have questions and we get to work together to try, try and find answers. So I think that's like a really unique position that we're in to be able to make these collaborations with people as a company because when you're working at a university or with a large national lab or something there are a lot of limitations in the cannabis space so we get to do a lot of stuff that people just legally cannot do which is insane when you think that think about the fact that we are doing research on these things to like ultimately provide benefits to people so the fact that that research can be so um illegalized and just like it can be it can be very you know i feel lucky to be in this space at this time and be able to do this absolutely it is very timely research and i agree that just collaboration is really when you make those those huge bounds in research like any individual lab can do some really cool work but any individual lab is not an expert in everything. And this is the same thing with like academic research, academic publications and journals. Like it's always very niche. But the more we can collaborate with different people, we're starting to broaden that perspective of that research and take in other expertises, take in other people's knowledge on things to help write that paper and put it in context. So I think it's really valuable. And yeah, some, some labs just don't want to collaborate. Like, I've worked at those labs, and it's like, why? Like, there's so many good researchers out there. Like, why are we not collaborating with them? And, you know, I never know what's happening on that managerial end. Um, but I'm, I'm always down to, like, collaborate with as many people as possible. So it's, it's cool that you're doing that. So would you mind just giving kind of an overview of the recent paper uh, that you just published? And, you know, maybe just start with like what you researched, what the results were. And then I would love to talk about the methods more because I found the methods very intriguing, not just the, the GC, but also like the human aspect of it, of a sensory panel, of a smell panel. Like, I think that's really cool to incorporate the, the human experience into it. Okay, for sure. Um, so basically what we were researching was what gives cannabis specific unique smell properties. So we know that as a terpene company, as a terpene flavor house, we know that a lot of these smells are more complicated than just one group of compounds. So we set out to see what other compounds are influencing the smell. Um, I don't think we expected that they would have such a dramatic influence as we found out. Um, but in some ways we did know because there are things that stick out, which we'll get to in the results that you know are something unique. Um, so we acquired 31 different types of ice, water, hash, rosin, um, and analyzed them on our GC cross GC. So. Basically, we have a very high fidelity piece of instrumentation that allows us to look at volatile components in cannabis. So we take this really concentrated cannabis material, run it through our GC, and get to see really small concentration compounds um, and differentiate them from other compounds. So we so get did you, this. Did you use um, the ice water hash because it is inherently more concentrated than something like flour, which which may not be as much concentrated? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's a large reason why consumers use ice hash rosin, too, because it's more concentrated in both um, effects and in flavor. So, yes, and we're removing some of like the plant material through this process that makes it hard for us to get this fidelity. So it just benefits us in multiple ways to use the hash. 
So you can get just so much more of a sensitive reading because you've really refined it to just like as much of just like the smelly molecules as possible and kind of getting rid of that other stuff, which may have been a huge limitation in previous research if they were using something like flour and they weren't using, you know, GCGC. Um, They might have not been able to even detect those analytes because they were in just such small concentrations. Yeah, exactly. And um, another thing with the hash is because it's used, because the way it's created is uh, a more gentle extraction approach. So there's no additional solvents. Um, and then there's no not a lot of heat applied to the product. Um, and because of the high extraction efficiency of rosin, um, we're able to say that, you know, this rosin profile is very, very, very similar to the flower profile that it came from. So it's not being altered dramatically. There's not heat destroying any of these compounds um, to create degradants or new products that wouldn't be in the plant originally. And then also we get to have a very homogenous sample in comparison to flower. So then we have like some more repeatability between our experiments because we're looking at one batch that's very similar versus one collection of buds that are very different from each other, depending on how it was harvested and cured. That makes a lot of sense. And I also just want to say there has been such limited research that utilizes hash, like of any sort in it. I was I was just kind of probing the research. I think this was a few months ago. And I couldn't find like anyone who was using hash as their research samples. Um, And somebody had asked me about it when I found out about your paper coming out. And at that point, I couldn't really tell anyone about anything. So I was like, oh, I'm sure someone's working on something with hash in in the near future. So I was I was really stoked to see that. And I think we're going to see more researchers start to use, you know, hash samples and ice water hash samples in their in their research. But sorry, keep going. You're doing great. Okay, cool. Um, Okay, so we put the hash into the GC, um, and, okay, so another cool thing about our GC that we started doing is we do direct injection now versus headspace analysis. So before, and what a lot of testing labs do um, is they put the sample in a vial, and then they heat the vial and sample the air above that's in the vial. So they're not so actually all those molecules in- like go into the air and then they're injecting that into the gas chromatography. Exactly. Okay. And what we're doing now is we're taking our sample and dissolving it into a solvent and then injecting the sample and the solvent solution directly into the GC. So we're getting a much higher concentration on our instrument from the start. So that's how we can see some of those even smaller compounds. Um, cool. Yes. Okay. So then we get out our chromatogram and we were able to see that we did verify like this ice water hash looks very similar to the same flower. So the profiles look good. Um, And then we looked at terpenes and then we started looking at other compounds that we could see in there. Um, And this is kind of like where Ian's specialty is. I feel like Dr. Oswald, he's our principal research investigator. Um, He looks at this 400 um, peak chromatogram and can spot differences just immediately. He's like, oh, that's a new peak. I've never seen that before. And so we can go in, look at our data. We have three different detectors. Um, So we look in our mass spec and we can get a pretty good idea of what some of these compounds are. Sometimes it might be a little bit iffy with like very small concentration compounds and um, stereochemistry or positional isomer stuff that looks like it's very similar to the compound you think. Um, So what we did after that was get as much um, analytical grade standard material as we could, or if we couldn't find an analytical grade standard, we'd get as close to a certified reference material as we could and verify those new compounds on the GC before we make it any claims. So you were using, I mean, Ian's brain sounds amazing. Um, so, so you were u- utilizing both like 
Ian, and was there any like software you were using to, to try to figure out if any of these are known compounds versus not known? Or are you kind of like working through each of these peaks that you find interesting and trying to say like, oh, like that one looks like something we've seen before and that one looks completely different because this is one of the hardest parts of natural product research <laughs> is trying to figure out what's known and what is not known. Yeah, and then you also have to do an incredible amount of due diligence to validate what you're what you're th saying. So um, we didn't really use the software. We utilize like the NIST library, which is yeah. the number one thing that we look through. Um, but other than that, we haven't really used any software. Um, I think the fact that we're a flavor house, a lot of these compounds we are things that we use in products. So we have them, we have access to them. They're used commonly in the flavor, in the flavor and fragrance industry. Um, so we had a little bit of a, an edge there. Um, and we also have an amazing team of flavor chemists who we work with. So, um, you know, we can take something to them and ask them what they think is in it and then look at our GC cross GC results and, and get a really good idea. So Ian, our flavor chemist, the mass spectra, um, just like a lot of time looking at the same, <laughs> the same very similar images um, and trying to find differences. And I wish I could show you guys some pictures, but they're in the paper. There are pictures in the paper. Um, and I'll link uh, the paper in the show notes of this episode, along with the VSC paper that you've published in the past at Abstracts, just in case people want um, to read both of those. For sure. Um, but some of these compounds are in such low concentration that the the contrast, like you would just think that that's like a background spot or a blip, but we do have the quantitation to be able to see that. So. There are things that I think just get so covered up by the amount of compounds in this. And then also like headspace can be a, a destructive sampling method. So you might be creating artifacts with that and then you're covering up more things. And one DGC just, you know, depending on your methods and your instrumentation and what your goal is, you might not be looking for all of these things anyway. So I think, you know, doing an untargeted analysis versus what testing labs do, even though testing labs may have the data, they're not looking for it the same way that this flavor house had a vested interest in. Right, that's a great point, targeted versus untargeted. So targeted in like a testing lab, a compliance lab, is they have certain things they're looking for and they're reporting back to people to say, hey, you have X amount of this and X amount of this. But untargeted is just like looking at a sample and saying like, okay, what's cool about this? Or like, you know, what, what's interesting? Where do we want to explore further? It's very exploratory in nature. So that's, that's a great point of just like research versus compliance in the cannabis space. Yes. Okay. So we're looking, we see all these brand new small compounds that we haven't seen before. We're going to generally refer to them as flavorants. Um, and then we did our sensory panel. So I can't exactly remember how many people are in this sensory panel because we have had two or three going on concurrently for different projects. Um, oh. But basically we have a, a lexicon of terms that we give each participant and they have like the ability to take the sample a tool to like move the sample around. They have as much time as they need. They can write extra notes. And these are people on our team who are both cannabis users and non-users. We, were you part of the, were you part of the, the panel? Yes. Cool. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to be part of a panel in the future. That's like okay. a, a goal of mine is to be on a panel. <laughs> Yeah, it is fun. It takes a lot of time. I think like in this study, um, to, to do sensory on 31, on 31 different samples, like you get nose fatigue, you have to take breaks and do it in sessions and go back. Do you have like coffee, coffee grounds or something yes. for people to smell them? Okay, cool. Yeah, I think I would get jaded from, from smelling all those different things and be like, I know, oh and, man, and, these and all smell the same. <laughs> 
Exactly. And a lot of them are so sweet. So we're also asking you to like differentiate between very, very sweet things like that, that could be similar. So um, I think in general, we're just like, the more notes, the better, like we'll sift through the data. Like if you feel an inkling, just go ahead and write it down. And yeah. along with the coffee, there's like a trick about if you smell the inside of your arm, like you smell your own skin, it will refresh your nose to be able to smell differences. Smell so if you arm. don't have coffee yeah. around, smell some arm. Um, so yeah. Um, and then we took that sensory data, looked for trends within it. Um, Wait, so the, the sensory panel is like, you guys are smelling all these different things and you're taking notes like this is really sweet. This is really savory. And you, are you rating it like one through 10 yes. or like, okay. Yeah. One, there is a okay. scale um, zero to a hundred with a hundred being like the sweetest, most exotic sweet thing you could possibly smell. So okay. yeah. So, um, and then what I'm trying to think, what other, there was also like a, um, a sweet exotic ranking and a preference ranking, like a liking, um, and some other rankings like that. Um, and then also we used, there's like a conversion between if someone said that it was like intense or mild, we translated that to a number scale and then use that as like okay. a factoring. Um, which so is you're all pairing in- like human experience data because our noses are so sensitive. Like we have 400 different smell receptors at least that can detect just like very minute differences in smell. But we also can just differentiate like sweet versus savory, like easier things to differentiate. So I think that's cool that that's incorporated into this and it's paired with analytical data so you're saying okay this is the human experience this is what the data is saying so how do we put these two together and figure out what these trends in chemistry are exactly and I think like also once we got later into the project after the um sensory panel had been like sealed we had all the participants smell some of these isolated compounds and then smell the samples again and say, now that you know what it smells like in its pure form, can you detect it in this sample? And we just did that for a couple of them. And for one specific uh, compound, Scatol, which is a very savory indole derivative, which is, um, it smells like sewage and... Um, it's found in feces. Um, Sounds so great, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it provides like a chemi note in cannabis. Um, so it adds like depth and chemical. Uh, so that's your savory varieties. That's, so that's your garlic savory. cookies. That's your yeah. chem dog. That's like those like really, really intense savory ones, which is so funny because so many people anecdotally are like, this weed smells like shit sometimes. Like they've literally said like, this smells like poop. And everyone thinks you're crazy when you say that. And then when I made that video for, with you guys in Weed Maps, there were so many comments that were like, this is so validating. I knew that there was a poop smell in the weed. And that yeah. is from Scatol, the molecule Scatol. Yeah, Scatol. And I think like, Okay, so same thing with skunks. Like everyone knew, oh my God, this smells so skunky. And it turned out to be those those other VSCs or canisulfur compounds. Um, those volatile pretty- sulfur compounds. We all knew that like something sulfur had to be in there if it smelled that much like skunk. Like there's exactly. there's always sulfur in that in that smell range. Um, and so <laughs> So with the Scatol specifically, we smelled it. Then we smelled the samples that we knew didn't have it or did have it. And, well, I knew, but maybe they didn't know at the time if they did or didn't have it. You can definitely detect it once you know what it smells like. And there was one, there might have been more than one, but there's one um, sweet variety that contained Scatol. And people could still detect it, even though it was overpoweringly sweet and ranked as one of the highest sweet exotic in the paper, you can still tell that it has scatol in it. Um, Do you remember what variety that was? Yeah, that was Fruity Pebbles. 
Fruity Pebbles. Interesting. Now I want to like definitely try that. When you when you open the vial for the Scatol standard, does like the whole lab like clear out? <laughs> I like accidentally ruined the lab for like three weeks because I had to make the custom standard with Scatol in it. So I'm making like a concentrated stock mixture of this in the lab and I'm like trying to weigh it out and of course I like spilled a little bit and had to like clean the scale out like entirely like it it stunk for days which was so I'm so sorry to all my lab mates out there because but also like that's (laughs) hilarious like if there's one thing to spill like you only ever spill something that's like just very inflammatory in some way like (laughs) I remember like if I ever was doing research and I only had like one milligram of something that was always the thing I would spill something yeah like when I only had a tiny tiny bit of it that's exactly how it was like I made like a 30 component custom standard at one point and I spilled like the one thing <laughs> I spilled was sketch all I was like okay <laughs> I keep oh that's funny um yeah so that sketch is one of the savory um exotic compounds or flavorants that we we discovered um we Which discovered is- Oh, I just wanted to say, too, like, scatol and indol were two of the, the molecules that, that you found um, relating to this research. And both of those are just really interesting, like, biologically. I mean, we don't know a lot right now. We can't, like, you know, make assumptions on what this means. But that just group in general, the indol group, is it's really important in natural products and pharmaceuticals in our own body. Uh, we know like psilocybin mushrooms, um, ergot fungi, like that is, that is that indole functional group. So, I mean, you would know better than I right now, but like, we don't know what research this is going to lead to, but it is a very interesting start just because that indole functional group is so important in so many biological systems. The thing that's really interesting with the indole also is it seems to be very widespread. So it's in a lot of different varieties, whereas scatol is kind of unique and only in, it appears to be in these certain varieties. Indole is a little bit more ubiquitous and it might actually play into some of the things that people describe as prototypical cannabis. So this might've been something that has been like, historically a part of cannabis for a long time and we just never realized how much it was ubiquitous in all of it so and you definitely wonder oh sorry go ahead yeah it definitely (laughs) could have implications in the future that we we don't know about yet even at that like low amount like if it is biologically active psychoactive like is that part of this feeling of mysticism of this feeling of like slight psychoactivity that's just a bit different in these different strains and you know people often argue like is cannabis a psychedelic and I do think it is and I think a lot of other people do and I think a lot of people use cannabis with other psychedelic medicine and I feel like that's part of the story and I really hope we're kind of on the brink of discovering that because um, I, I think just from user experience, a lot of people feel that way about using cannabis. Yeah, I agree with that. I've heard a lot of people um, postulate about this too since the paper came out because a lot of people share the same feeling that it does have psychedelic properties to it. Um, and then it makes you wonder too if you have had those experiences, like what was your usage like at that time and was it what was it due to? And if you speculate or believe about the entourage effect, then this just plays directly into that also. So 100%. I am a huge believer in the entourage effect with cannabis and every single other natural product. And I just can't believe anybody is not a believer in the entourage effect. Like, it's literally polypharmacology. Like, we have this term that we know. And I think the cannabis industry is just, you know, a little bit slower to fully accept things. Or maybe the pharmaceutical industry is a little slower to accept things about cannabis. But I'm I'm a thousand percent in on the entourage effect. I think the cannabis industry also has, has the habit for people to to take a scientific claim and then take it to the next level of (laughs) something that's beyond. So I feel like I've heard people take this thing, the entourage effect to like a whole nother level. That's like, okay, well, 
let's stick to what the data says i feel like yes i would i would agree with that too and i mean it's not just like the industry just like media in general too will just take something small and be like boom like yeah. cannabis cures covid and it's like all right let's let's like read the study before we <laughs> before we go like too far into that because a lot of this data was done like in a test tube so um yes i would agree with that that's fair <laughs> okay, okay sorry keep going so we kind of left off with indole scatol specifically being responsible for those like really savory type um smells what's responsible for the really sweet smells of those like fruity and like delicious smelling varieties yeah so primarily esters are responsible for that um and then there's also some tropical can of sulfur compounds that uh, may influence things more towards like citrusy sweetness versus but still a type of fruit um there are other esters and even other compounds so things like um ethyl hexanoate and n-propyl hexanoate these uh compounds that are commonly found in other fruits are also found in cannabis and when they're there in significant concentrations they drive the aroma towards these fruity notes that we're already familiar with in other plants oh very cool Yes, and there was also like a methyl anthranilate compound, which is very grape-like. So in cultivars like grape pie, dosi dough, there's high concentrations of that, and participants can definitely distinctify that this is very sweet and this does have notes of grape. Very cool. And this was a question. I mean, I've had, and also just from like. A few of the Patreon people that are subscribing to my Patreon were asking similar questions, but like, how does this research, how is that linked to like what our previous understanding on terpenes being responsible for all the smells? Like, what does this research really do? Does it corroborate that? Does it back it up? Or is it saying, yeah, you know, terpenes are important, but these are important too? Because I feel like there's another slightly toxic thing that we all tend to do is like, we all want to focus on something saying like, oh, you know, cannabinoids don't matter. It's all about terpenes. And it's like, oh, terpenes don't matter. It's all about flavorance. And I mean, at what point are we going to realize that everything matters? Like everything matters. That's a great point. Here we are back around to the entourage effect. All of these things working together. Um, I think what we're with this paper is saying is that um, when you have these unique exotic varieties, there are compounds other than terpenes that are primarily driving the aroma in those strains or those cultivars. And then when you look at very prototypical type cannabis strains like Jack Herrera and OG Kush, they lack these flavorants. So you can maybe make your own inference on whether you want to say terpenes don't matter or flavorants matter more. But what the data says is that statistically in these very sweet exotic strains or very savory exotic strains, there are other compounds that are influencing the main perception. And I mean, there are tons of people who still love traditional prototypical cannabis. So for them, if they want to say terpenes are the most important thing, then I don't think that would be (laughs) incorrect. (laughs) But So when we say prototypical, this is what I'm picturing is like a bell curve. And then like the middle is your prototypical, just your like classic types of cannabis. And then the edges um, would be like your exotics. Would you like agree with that? Like you'd have savory on one end and, and sweet on the other end and then prototypical in the middle? Yeah, I would agree with that. But I would say like the industry in California now is actually, I think, leaning more towards the sweet exotic side because oh, okay. there's a lot. I mean, other people in the industry may disagree, but I, I see a lot of candy type strains and cultivars like that are intended to be very sweet. Or I think people are looking for exotic cannabis now because prototypical has been the majority. And as people are getting more into cultivating and they have the ability to cultivate in larger scales with more techniques and everything like that, um, I think we're getting the, the sides of the bell curves are expanding. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned Jack Hare, which is my 
favorite strain of all time. I could smoke it for the rest of my life and probably be, be okay. Um, that, that strain is dominant in the terpene terpenaline. There was a little bit of this research that was saying that I, I'm obsessed with terpenaline. And um, this research was saying that that didn't really fit the mold in, in this paper. Do you mind explaining that a little bit more? Because that's something that, like, terpenaline never fits the mold in, yeah. these, in these different research papers. It's just, it's in the uh, previous um, videos I've made just talking about, like, the indica sativa hybrid uh, model of classification. Terpenaline dominant strains kind of, cluster together in this like quote sativa dominant cluster whereas there was really no other trends observed and similarly in this research that you're talking about um these terpenaline dominant strains although they weren't sampled a lot in this research but they still don't really fit um this mold so what's going on with terpenaline yeah so the cultivar train wreck is the terpenaline rich strain that we had and basically yeah you're right it doesn't ever fit the mold um so I really can't speak too much on it because Don't that worry. was okay. Because that is like the last thing that we added to the paper. Um, actually, at the request of a, a editor. Yeah, an editor was like, "You guys don't or a have reviewer. any." Yeah, a reviewer. It was, they, it was probably reviewer number two. It's always reviewer number two who's the asshole. Just saying. Uh, they were like, "Do you don't have any terpenaline rich strains?" So we were like, okay, let's go get one right now <laughs> and add it to the paper and redo all of our statistics um, in the oh, God. editing process to include this. Um, so You don't need to say anything else about um, terpenaline. Um, don't worry about that. I just okay. love it. Um, <laughs> um, and also, I want, like, but that is like a new thing for us is to include more of those in our research to balance it out so we can try to figure out what's happening with it. Okay, perfect. Let me know when you do that. I want to know everything about terpenaline. Um, so all of these different ice water hash samples, you, you acquired them all from 710 Labs, right? Um, some of them were from 710 Labs, but some of them were others that we, we purchased from dispensaries around. And oh, also okay, cool. some from like other... Um, growers that we work with very cool yeah i was wondering what that like relationship was like if that was like exclusive that you were just analyzing their samples if it was anyone but yeah that's really cool mm -hmm. do we think that um this is this is like theory so don't worry this is not something from the paper but um you know people talk a lot about like terroir and like what's happening in the soil being responsible for what's being expressed in the actual bud and the smell and you know people were saying oh so if we want more of these tropicana sulfurs if we want more of these sulfur containing molecules do we just add sulfur to the soil? Do we know anything about that on how like the soil, the microbiome, like how that influences what is being produced on the flower end? Yes and no. I think not in specifics to um, sulfur compounds or sulfur compounds, but there is some research that I saw at the recent ACS conference about um, a group in, I want to say Israel, doing... Um, hemp breeding and they're doing like traditional agriculture experiments where they add like nitrogen phosphorus potassium directly to the soil and then monitor the output of those plants and I would say that their research did have some um, conclusive uh, um, points about how adding directly adding these nutrients or minerals or whatever they are to the soil and how that affected the outcome Cool. I'll definitely check out that research. I know it's a very difficult time in that region right now, so they might not be doing research at the moment, but I hope they're all safe wherever they are. Yeah. Um, a I lot can of send you the Sorry. link to put in oh, there. That would be awesome. I would love to read it and share it with everyone. I think a lot of like what the research you're doing is like a lot of what that comes down to to me is like we, we need to have the ability to smell products in dispensaries. Like if we want to be able to smell these really subtle hints of whether it's savory notes or sweet notes or whatever it is, because obviously testing labs are not 
reporting these compounds on, you know, the certificate of analysis when you're buying them? Because, I mean, you just released this research, right? So maybe in the future, some of them might be standardized to those testing labs. But right now, it's really cannabinoids and terpenes that are recorded or reported on those COAs. So, you know, you can't really tell the smell of a product just based on that COA. And that was also a bit obvious in this research, too. And I think one of the takeaways was that, like, limonene was one of the, was one of the worst um, predictable terpenes for, like, how something's going to smell. Like, you could have a really savory variety that could be dominant in lim- limonene, and you could have a really sweet variety that was dominant in limonene. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is a a really good takeaway. And that's something that we definitely talked about in some of our white papers that are coming out is if you're just looking at the top three highest concentration terpenes in your product, that's not really going to give you an idea of how this is going to smell. And we know from other research that how things smell is important for how they're going to make us feel. And so this is a great point. And I think Um, With the limonene, one of the highest and the lowest rated exotic strains were both dominant in limonene. So it really doesn't give us any kind of information about what this is going to smell like or how it's going to make us feel. Um, And it is going to be challenging for testing labs to to work on this methodology. But I think like it's only going to benefit the consumers. And isn't that the... Um, benefit and the pros of having testing labs anyways is always for consumer benefit and it does it is interesting too because in California terpene testing isn't required so you may get products where they don't have any terpene information at all and I think also with like we talk about a little bit in the paper about um, cultivar inaccuracy or like labeling inaccuracy because we had an outlier we believe that was uh, given to us as Gorilla Glue, but it contained some tropical canisulfur compounds that would not be present in this Gorilla Glue sample usually. Gorilla Glue is supposed to be spicy and sulfuric, and these tropical sulfur compounds are very sweet and tropical and acidic. Um, so kind of different ends of the, the spectrum here. Um, and so when it comes to things like cultivar inaccuracy, now we're just confusing consumers more based on what they think they're getting versus when they actually get it in their hands. And now they're gonna look for that next time they go to get Gorilla Glue and it's not gonna be the same. And then, you know, it just, it is very confusing. And I feel like, I hope that this research can benefit consumers um, with labeling and also just like education, because even if, the first step is just getting people in the dispensaries like bud tenders to be aware of this. Um, if the if we can't smell our products, if they can smell them, and like if you know what scatol smells like or if you know what these Tropicana sulfur compounds smell like, you might be able to advise your patients better anyway. That's a really good point. I have never thought about that, of just having bud tenders allowed to smell things and consumers not. I mean, obviously, ideal if consumers could smell things because your body kind of knows specifically what you're looking for. Like, I can smell flour and be like, that's going to make me tired for sure. That's going to make me feel awake for sure. Um, So I think that's important. But if that's not in the legal landscape, maybe having bud tenders uh, being able to smell products. And I really, really do think that this is going to make this research is going to make a huge dent in the consumer experience even if you can if you're not allowed to smell things like we could use this data and maybe some analytics to predict what that smell would be like based on the chemistry which we've never had before because we know that terpenes aren't necessarily a great predictor of aroma you may have you know a a limonene dominant strain still might smell a little bit citrusy that's fine but it's not going to have all those other notes those like that that full picture of what that aroma really smells like i also want man there's a lot i want to talk about um just you mentioned that this like this whole slew of different compounds we call them flavorants that is different than flavonoids which i think is really really important to talk about because yeah. they sound so similar but they are so different yes so flavorants are compounds that affect the flavor taste or aroma of something 
that's what we're kind of going for with the term flavorants. So those would be like non-terpene compounds. So there are um, specific functional groups that make terpenes terpenes and specific functional groups that make other things not terpenes. So that's one distinction. Flavonoids are a group of polyphenols in that cannabis makes, and I think they're usually pigment-related compounds. Yep, um, a bunch of different plants make different flavonoids. Um, so, yes, and they're often like your purple varieties. Those are high in flavonoids. Um, also, just like when leaves turn different colors in the fall, like that's from flavonoids too. They're abundant in almost every plant. And I've seen research about polyphenols in cannabis and their purported effects and also about canned flavins specifically. Those are all different things from flavorants. <laughs> and flavorants are much smaller compounds usually. Um, polyphenols implies like multiple phenol groups, which is a big, a big functional group. Flavorants are are esters, they're these tropicana sulfur compounds, sulfur, smaller sulfur compounds. They're much smaller compounds in comparison to polyphenols. And they have a totally- So they're smaller, so they are more volatile, so they're smellier, and that's kind of why they're in that flavoring category. Exactly, and that's what we would just consider that whole category, like the non, or sorry, the volatile category, which would be like terpenes and flavorants and canna sulfur compounds. Those are all small ones that are going to volatilize and have an impact on how we smell and taste them. And then these big flavonoid compounds are going to change the appearance of it, but they're not going to affect the taste or smell. Perfect. Just wanted to make sure that was included because I think for a lot of people who aren't super familiar with these different terms, which we're using a lot of terms in this episode, um, but you know, it's really important to tell the difference between those, especially as you guys keep releasing more research and keep kind of building on this idea. You mentioned that uh, your team was working on some white papers. Is that kind of diving into the concepts discussed in this paper in more detail, or is that kind of... Um, different topics or can you talk about them at all totally yeah so we are breaking down this exotic paper into four white papers um so that they can be a little bit more digestible and um because there is a lot of information in the paper that is kind of you know we i understand we we want to just put it all out there so people have access to it and it's easiest to just put a whole story together and submit that um so there's going to be four different ones. I think one is going to be focused on terpenes and their role. Um, and then another is going to be focused on sweet exotic cannabis, which is going to be pretty much the esters and stuff like that. And uh, a savory chem exotic paper fo- focused on those um, indole compounds. And then a paper on the tropical VSCs or the tropical canna sulfur compounds, which is going to be about the three new tropical sulfur compounds that we discovered and identified. Very cool. And I love that you're publishing white papers um, because, yeah, I mean, the paper you published was amazing. Um, figure five especially is my fave. Um, but, you know, that paper is amazing. But, of course, oftentimes, like, we don't have the word space to talk about the things we care about in a publication and in more detail and to use the language to break it down for the general public, which I think is so important, especially in cannabis, when we're all taking in these different compounds, we're using them as medicine, we feel the effects from them, like, we care about this science. And it's really awesome that your team, all of you are taking the time to just really break that down and make it digestible for our community to fully understand. Thank you. I think that is one of Abstract's like huge proponent things that they want to do too. Like they're very passionate about informing the industry and making it accessible to people to learn about science because like, yeah, like just as you said, at the end of the day, we all have an interest in this and it benefits us all to know about the things that we are putting in our body. So um, I'm super grateful that they they want to inform the public and that they're encouraging us to write these. And I mean, like like what you said when you're asking, like, what does this mean about terpenes for like the everyday consumer? Like, that's a great thing that we get to talk about a little bit more in the white paper that wouldn't have been as appropriate in this peer reviewed publication. 
Absolutely. And, you know, something that we obviously all care about is biological effect. And so this paper really identifies some new chemistry. And I think a lot of people are like, what? What does that mean? Like, so, like, what does that mean for how I feel? And I think what we, what's so important to like remember about science is every time you're publishing and you're releasing data, you're releasing research, you're re- you're releasing a piece of that puzzle. You're saying, okay, everyone, here, like, here's a piece. Now you all know this. So then, whether it's you or whether it's a different group, can take that information and now you can study the biological effect because now you know what molecules are present. So, you know, you said you had standards too. Like, that's really where you start in saying, okay, well, we know these varieties make people feel really sleepy and these ones make people feel really awake. Why don't we look at this new chemistry, run them against some biological assays and look for some new bioactivity? You know, that's, that's, how research works is you you do pieces of the puzzle. It's not usually like slamming down a puzzle and saying, hey, everyone, look, I'm done. Like I figured it all out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And on the other other side of the spectrum, so like if you're looking at the biological activity, you asked about like the botanical effects of growing, like it's a whole spectrum. And us as one company, we can try to facilitate all these different aspects of research, but we're not going to be experts in horticulture and bioassays it would be really cool but it's just unprop it's unlikely um and that's then, why you collaborate exactly that, you know goes back to that that part we were talking to in the beginning is like you can't be good at everything you shouldn't be good at everything but there are people who are good at everything like at somewhere in the world so we just got to find the right collaboration partners and that's how you make research really take off yeah and i think that's and that and that's where publishing helps too because now even if i can't collaborate with someone else they can take this research and run with it and i think that's like the dream is to see you know your research continued on in other people's work and see that it has a continuing impact. Absolutely. I think that's, I mean, I'm going to ask you a few kind of just closing questions, but first I really appreciate you just breaking down that research for all the listeners. I think, you know, between the the short form videos that I've made and this long form podcast and the white papers, I think just all together, I think we can start to really start to grasp this new research and, and figure out what it means for our community. So thank you for that. So what's next? Can you, can you talk about anything else? Uh, what your team is um, working on next? Or is that all super top secret? No uh, worries if I think is. I can talk about it a little bit. Because um, we did give some presentations at the last ACS conference. So some of it is out there in the community. But um, we are working on another paper that I'm actually the first author on, which will be about... Yay. Thank you. Which will be about, uh, it'll be a case study on this paper. So more about exotic cannabis and flavorants and hash um, with specific variety, basically um, using only 710 um, hash this time. Um, so it'll cool. be a, a case study, whereas this paper is a very broad spectrum research where we had a lot of different cultivars in here this is going to be a little bit more narrow um so we're hoping to be able to derive more specific relationships from that um that should be coming out hopefully in the next six months and then we have another team member who is doing some research with um extraction different extraction techniques for cannabis and different kinds of hash making um, so cool. yeah, that will be coming out in a, in maybe a little bit longer cause we're still doing research with that. Um, so we, those are the two that we have lined up for cannabis science in the next couple, uh, next year maybe. Um, and then after that, we'll just have to see where we go. Cause we are working on some other stuff with, um, hops. And so that's going to be a little bit different for a while, but yeah, I think, we're always still looking at these um, VSCs and CSCs. We still have some more that we know we're looking to, to identify. So that's something that we keep in our back pocket and work is ongoing all the time. Perfect. I mean, you guys are just so perfectly set up to continue researching this uh, with the team that you have. So I can't wait to keep reading all the research and, and staying up to date with everything you're doing because I find it absolutely amazing. 
Um, so would you mind just for any of the listeners who maybe want to get into the cannabis industry, don't really know where to start, any advice, especially for neurodivergent people, for, you know, female assigned at birth, like what are, what's some advice into getting into the position that you've got yourself in and anything that you can kind of provide for them to, to make it easier? I would say like, oh gosh, this is not great advice, but you really just have to stick to what you want to do. If it's something that you're passionate about and if this is somewhere that you see yourself going, um, you have to like work through all the bullshit and put yourself out there, even though it's hard at times and you might have to face rejection. I think just keep putting yourself out there and being open to opportunities is the main thing because just in the last couple of years that I've worked in the industry, I see a lot of turnover and a lot of people leave the industry quickly um, because it's not always that easy. So I think, you know, if it's something you want to do, just be patient and I hope the right opportunity will show up for you. And I think um, don't be afraid to put yourself in positions that you wouldn't expect to thrive in. Like, don't be afraid to try something new that you're not sure about, even if that's, you know, if that's a role, if that's a company, if that's a place in the country that you need to go. Um, I've moved twice to work in the cannabis industry. Um, So just stick to it. And I think like the more um, skills that you acquire, like I think technical skills really helped me a lot to get to where I was because I was able to have a lot of hands-on um, time with instrumentation. So if if you want to work whatever assays or techniques, instrumentation that you have the opportunity to do, even if it's not in the cannabis industry, sometimes it's nice to get skills under your belt and then come in. Um, I think that's great advice. And I think something that you've kind of spoken about that I've talked about a lot too is just kind of being open to opportunities too. Um, Like not saying like, oh, this is my dream job. I need to do this path, this linear path to get here. And there's only one way to get here. It's like you kind of, especially in cannabis, like you need to network, you need to talk to people and you need to be open to things that may not be like on that linear path, but could still be part of the journey of getting to your dream job, your dream position of just meeting the right people and being at the right place at the right time. And speaking of that, are you going to Vegas for MJ Biz? I am. Cool. I am too. I want to meet up with you. That'd be so cool. (laughs) Yeah, this will be my first year. I'm super excited. It's so wild. It's like, it's absolutely insane. I had never been to Vegas before MJ Biz a few years ago. Are you there? And I just, oh my gosh. It's like getting off the plane. I'm like, I cannot believe the scale of this place. Like everything is massive. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) It's so fun. And you can do whatever you want. Vegas is like Florida, but different. (laughs) Yeah, but hotter. Yeah, but hotter. We'll we'll definitely link up there, and I'm excited to meet you in person. Thank you again for being on the podcast, telling us about what you're doing, and doing all the important research, because it seriously is making our industry, you know, leaps and bounds better with every paper that you guys publish. Thank you so much.